This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray real quick, and then we'll jump in. So, Jesus, thank you so much for your word, for instruction, for wisdom, for guidance, for the Holy Spirit's empowerment and strength for us in these days in which we live, that we can have a hope that we're not alone, that we can have a hope that the world as it currently is and suffers under and us suffer as a result of the sufferings all around us is not our eternal state. God, that we have a hope that Jesus has come and will come and make all things right and new and create all things new and set this world to a place of goodness once again. So God, we anchor our hope in you this morning and we pray that you would speak to us from your word and bring us encouragement that we need. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Grab a seat. Thanks. Good job, guys. That was awesome. All right. So in going through this series, we've been making our way through chapter 7 and looking at kind of the larger picture of what's happening here. Jesus does a miracle, which is not uncommon for Jesus. As a result of Jesus doing a miracle, people are uh, provoked and triggered and frustrated by Jesus from a variety of angles. And what we see in this little section that we just read is um, really just three main movements that I really want to just pause, reflect upon, and then we'll just kind of wrap it up this morning with some hopefully um, encouragement for you as to really ask the question, how can we maintain faithfulness to Jesus, even in the midst of a culture that has multitudes of opinions and ideas and suspicions as to what should be done with Jesus and his message and those who follow Jesus and so on and so forth. So what I want to do real quick, I just will go through each one of these one by one. So first of all, I thought it'd be kind of interesting because we read a lot of different movements here in the passage in terms of characters. I thought it'd be good to just kind of take a quick assessment in terms of the cast of characters who's actually in this little segment here because there's a lot of them. So I'll go through these real quickly. So just Pay attention if you want. Just go ahead and look at it on the screen. Number one, verse 40 tells us that there were some people, some people. Uh, verse 41, A and B, I'll just kind of group these together. It describes, and then there were others, and still there were others. So you can just get this idea, a multitude of people that are gathered around Jesus, listening to him, hearing him, having opinions about him. Uh, and then verse 45, we're told that there were these officers. So this would have been basically known as temple guards. So within Judaism, on the Temple Mount, it was uh, the most holy site in all of Judaism. Uh, if you, if we were to have sort of a parallel today in our world, it's kind of like Mecca. Think of this massive, or even Vatican City, this massive area where people, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people would come and gather. So you would require some degree of security. That's what these guys were. They were temple officers. Their job was to keep peace and security. And then we're introduced to the priests, or the chief priests, verse 45b. Uh, and then we're told of another segment of the religious seg- people called uh, Pharisees, and that's verse 45. And then we're told about this guy named Nicodemus. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus that we've been going through, the Gospel of John, uh, he shows up in around chapter 3, somewhere around there. Tell, tells us that he comes to Jesus at night. He was a religious leader. He was also part of the sect of what's called the Pharisees. Uh, he's a unique guy, and we'll see more about him in just a moment. Um, but he's a guy that that no doubt had a curiosity in Jesus, but we'll more about him in two seconds. Secondly, let's move on into kind of the second like movement or segment of this, which is sort of the opinions that people had. So uh, if you, you know, as you read this, you realize that everybody seems to have an opinion about Jesus. Um, 
one thing I found that's fascinating about Jesus is that if you were to just go up to anybody randomly, you know, down at Avila Beach or downtown Slow or whatever, and just kind of interview people, like ask them, who do you think Jesus is or what do you think about Jesus? You're going to get dozens of different opinions as to who Jesus was. I mean, relatively, you'll probably get half a dozen, and they're probably all going to be similar to one another. But the point of the matter is you get everybody has an opinion about Jesus, and it's not always unified, which means some of them are going to be very contradictory uh, from one another. So I was kind of doing some research and thinking about this. There's a handful of ones that I found that were fascinating. A guy, a uh, writer by the name of H.G. Wells, I'm sure you guys are familiar with him. He was a very uh, prolific author and writer, very influential, by the way, uh, to C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and whatnot in terms of science fiction and pretty fascinating guy. He was not a Christian. He was a, uh, a, an atheist. Um, especially towards the later end of his life, he said this. He says, I'm a historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess, Jesus is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. But he does not dominate my heart. Just had to add that. That was interesting. Um, there's a guy named Ludwig von Mises. Ludwig von Mises. What a cool name. The guy was an Austrian dude. Um, economist, philosopher. He fled uh Austria during the rise of the Third Reich and comes to America and just continued his career over here. Um, he had written uh, extensively, but he had specifically talked about Jesus. He said this, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more than more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Muhammad, Napoleon, without science and without learning. Jesus didn't go to school, or at least the schools that everybody expected to be the main educational centers of his uh, culture. He wasn't a scientist. He wasn't skilled in any of this type of stuff. It goes on to say, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Just pause and think about that. Think about that. Think about how many hundreds of thousands of scholars, philosophers, scientists, um, people of notability have been influenced by this untrained, uneducated, non-scientific peasant. Just pause and think about that. Ask yourself, how? How is that possible? Well, there's something unique about Jesus. And what we find is everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Why is Jesus uh, create and generate so many opinions? Why is Jesus so polarizing, as we just read in the passage? And one of my favorite authors, I'm sure you guys have familiar with that by now if you've been around here for any length of time, C.S. Lewis, he said this. He says, a man who is merely a man who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. And he's he's referencing and he's kind of uh, anticipating certain opinions of his own day because, again, obviously as a scholar, uh, C.S. Lewis was familiar with having conversations with people and people were like, Jesus, yeah, great moral teacher. But what C.S. Lewis is trying to say is that you, you can, unless you are willing to make that leap of acknowledging Jesus as a great moral teacher, and then throw yourself entirely at his feet as a worshiper, you, you really cannot, so Lewis is trying to say, he's trying to point out the contradictory ideas of saying, Jesus is a great moral teacher, but I don't worship him. C.S. Lewis' whole point is like, you really can't do that. That's not being consistent with the logic here. Here's what he goes on to say. A man who is merely a man who said the sort of things that Jesus said would actually not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was who he was or was who he is, the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. Now again, logically, this makes a lot of sense. Imagine like if some random person, say, 
I don't know, Charles Manson says, I'm the Messiah, worship me. Like, we can look at that and be like, nah, he's probably not the Messiah, and he probably should not be worshipped. He's a madman. He deserves to be locked up, which is, you know, what's been happening. But the point that I would make is this, is that C.S. Lewis is saying, why do we give Jesus the pass? If, if he was just a moral teacher, and that was it, not Lord, not Christ, not King, demanding and inviting us to honor and worship and love him and orient the sum total of our lives around him, C.S. Lewis' whole point is we're not being logically consistent. And so the point that I would make is this. Everybody seems to have an opinion about Jesus. This is an important thing to consider, that every one of us in this room, you cannot have a neutral standing when it comes to Jesus. Um, Really, the call, the invitation for us is to be consistent in that. So, again, if us as people looking at and listening to Jesus and say, Jesus, he's he's a great guy. But you don't worship him. You don't love him. You don't orient the sum total of your life around him. There are inconsistencies here. In other words, you can look at someone who's, who claims, who you claim to have a lot of wisdom. But the, you take the things that they say with a grain of salt. There's a, there's a moral inconsistency there. It's like, well, wait a minute. You, you, you said that they have wisdom, but you disrepute and disregard their wisdom and call it silly. That's not being consistent, or you're contradictory within your own life. So this is the invitation for us to consider about who we think about Jesus. Now, getting back into the text, we'll go through a handful of these, because again, each one of these characters that play into the story also has some form of contribution to their opinion about Jesus. We'll go through them one by one. Um, First of all, take a look at the quote-unquote some people. These people in verse 40, uh, they look at Jesus and say, we think he's the prophet. We think he's the prophet. Uh, this probably would have been a reference to Deuteronomy 18, verse uh, 15. Now, again, this is this is not a small view. This is a very significant view. But it's not the same view that, that a follower of Jesus or a Christian would look at. Um, yes, uh, Christians have viewed Jesus as a voice of God, i.e. a prophet. But a prophet, from a, from a biblical perspective, is not the same thing as saying someone is God. It's saying that they have a significant role to play in, in culture and society as being representative of God. Um, and this is what some people are saying with regard to Jesus. He is the prophet. He's laying the way. He's laying the groundwork for the one that's to come, the Messiah. But he's, he's not the Messiah. He's just a significant figure uh, paving the way, speaking forth truths of God. But that's all that he is. Second, we're uh, told about these, quote-unquote, other people or others. Uh, They see Jesus as the Christ, as it says in verse 41. Again, this is a reference to the word Christ means Messiah or Mashiach. Another way, if you want to write in your margin of your Bible, just write the word king. King. That's the best way we can think of it. Think of it as someone who has absolute authority over all things. That you orient the sum total of your life around and toward and that's the view of what a monarch or i should say uh, uh, the uh, messiah would be it was a king anointed by god to carry out a certain role and again they had some uh unique messianic expectations meaning they expected this messiah to basically overcome their enemies in the context of first century would have been rome uh in the romans they saw themselves living in occupied territory under the boot of the romans and the hostile 
um, oppressors as they had viewed Romans. So they were, they were hoping one day that God would rise up and overcome their enemies, in this case, Romans. Romans. So if Jesus was going to be the Messiah, fulfill that profile of being the Messiah, he would then at some point uh, initiate or instigate this bloody revolution and overcome. Now, obviously we know that's not exactly what happened. And as a result of that, did, did Jesus let some people down? Yes, the answer to that is yes, yes. Some people expected Jesus to pick up sword and shield and to attack enemies. Uh, instead, Jesus allowed himself to suffer under the hands of the Romans. He became a victim of the state, though it wasn't a victim. He laid his life down, knowing what, exactly what he was going to do. But he had a different agenda, which meant he fulfilled different expectations. That's something for you to even consider and think about. What are you expecting Jesus to do for you? Do your expectations line up with Scripture? Um, are they, what happens if Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? Will you walk away? Will you uh, be frustrated and angry and leave? But these are the types of things that they were facing. Uh, thirdly, we're described of this group of people that were skeptics. They were skeptical of him because uh, in verse 41, we're told, um, you know, he came from Galilee. Like, we know, according to scriptures, and this idea is this, this is another, like, interesting little nuance here. They had so much confidence, not in scriptures, but in their, their interpretation of the scriptures. This is where Christians sometimes can learn uh, a huge degree of humility. Um, as a young Christian, when I first met Jesus, um, this is going to come as a shock to many of you, I, I knew everything there was to be known about the Bible. I listened to a couple podcasts. Actually, they didn't even exist back then. I listened to these things called cassette tapes. Some of you are like, cassette tape? Yeah, check them out. Um, I listened to sermons. I would go to Bible studies all the time. And one thing I discovered is I learned everything that could be known about the Bible. So if ever there was somebody that was able to call people out on their failure to know scriptures, it was me. And I did a really good job at it. And I'm still in recovery of being a Pharisee. I'm still in the process of learning to undo my certitude and arrogance. And uh, Jesus has been gracious with me, and so has my wife. But the point that I make is this, is that we see this type of thing taking place, is that these people had certain opinions and ideas and interpretations of Scripture, and it was formulating this idea that, that in their mind, that there's no way the Messiah could have come from this region. We know what this region is like. There's nothing great ever comes out of this region. And so therefore, it's impossible, according to the Scriptures, they would say according to the Scriptures, though it would be more accurate for them to say according to our interpretation of the Scriptures. But again, that's a nuance that oftentimes gets missed. The point of the matter is they would look at this and say, because Jesus doesn't fill our certain expectations as to how we've understood the Scripture, it can't, he cannot be anyone significant. Just pause and let that sink in a little bit. And lastly, we're introduced again to the opinions of these officers. Um, What I find fascinating about these guys, these were the temple guards. Remember, their job was to keep peace. Um, They're they're watching, listening, observing all the stuff that's happening around Jesus. And these guys are like captivated by Jesus. And you got to love sort of the... uh, the irony in the story here, their job is to keep peace, which means in the context of the temple system, they work for the temple leaders, which have been the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they were basically employed by these particular groups of people, which meant that they were expected to comply with their viewpoints of who Jesus was, which, again, quick question, did scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees think favorably about Jesus, yes or no? 
No, for the most part, no. There are a few people that were intrigued by Jesus, like Nicodemus, but for the most part, the general consensus by the religious elite in the system of Judaism that managed the temple, they did not think very favorably of Jesus whatsoever. So these guards, their job was to work for the system and to basically create arrests for people that would be in non-compliance with their framework of reference. And so they come back without Jesus, and they're like, hey, where's Jesus? And they're like, oh, we didn't arrest him. They're like, why? Well, no one's ever talked like this guy. They're like, are you, are, are you a follower now too? Like, did you get seduced by the teachings of Jesus as well? And again, it's just interesting little irony. John's telling us a story. It's one thing that I find that's fascinating. So everybody, the point that I want to make is this. Everybody has this opinion about Jesus. Everybody. It shouldn't shock us, but it's the world that we live in. We live in a world today where everybody has an opinion about Jesus. But we know that there's a massive difference between opinions and truth. And I'll even add, there's a massive difference between truth and my truth. We live in a culture today that wants to say the most important truth in the world today is your truth. True or false? Is that the world that we live in? Very much so. But that becomes complicated, and oftentimes it becomes contradictory. Because sometimes facts on the ground and actual truth of what's happening in the world today does not coincide or does not even tilt favorably towards my own assessment and opinion and subjective understanding of the world around me or how I interpret things. Because it's possible that there are certain circumstances that can happen in my life and through the grid of my framework and my lived experience, I might misinterpret somebody's actions towards me and that becomes my truth, but that truth might not be the actual real truth. Does that make sense? Or did I just completely confuse everybody here? The point that I'd make is this, is that when we see what's happening here in the passage, is that even though everybody has an opinion about Jesus, some of these opinions are straight up, contradic- straight up contradictory towards one another. But the key is, is how do we get to really understanding Jesus for who he claims to be? And then, more importantly, orient our lives around that. And then lastly, I want to finish with this little segment here, and I'll finish with, with some final thoughts is that we see Jesus very clearly being kind of the source of this uh, division. So in verse 43, again, read this. It says, so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So obviously Jesus becomes this polarizing figure. Is Jesus today still a polarizing figure? Yes or no? Absolutely. So nothing's changed in 2,000 years. You're welcome. Let's go home. The point that I would make is, what do we do with this? Like, what do we do with this today? How do we live in light of this fact that Jesus is still creating division and polarization within our world? How do we, how do we, how do we manage this and walk through this in our world? So what I want to do is I want to take a look at a handful of things with regard to how Jesus brings division. We got, we got an, we got an excited child here, like wants me to preach louder, I guess. So what, what we want to do is I want to think about three different ways in which Jesus brings about division in our world. And I think this is important for us to kind of pause and maybe do a little thinking, careful inspection as to how Jesus does this. It's not necessarily Jesus himself. It's what he teaches. It's what he represents. It's how he communicates. It's how he shows kindness and does the things that he does. In some cases, uh, clarity, or in some cases, uh, speaks forth just hard truths that are sometimes difficult for us to even understand and comprehend. But there's at least three different major ways in which Jesus brings division in our world. I'll go through these real quickly. Number one, his claims and his identity. The things that Jesus says and the, Jesus, the things that Jesus claims to be in terms of his identity. 
Everybody has an opinion about that. Do you know that you can talk to the average Muslim and they would have extremely high value in regard towards Jesus? Everyone. You'd ask them, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Jesus is amazing. He's the greatest of all prophets. But if you were to ask them, is he to be worshipped? They would say, absolutely not. It's blasphemy. Do not worship Jesus. He is nothing more than a great prophet. So, again, the question is, did Jesus claim to be more, or was Jesus merely something none other than just a prophet? And that's that. This is why this matters, because whatever Jesus claimed about himself and the identity that he affixed his, his reality over towards literally changed history as we know it. Throughout the Gospel of John, there's at least seven, seven occasions where John says Jesus is, and then he gives these what we call I am statements. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the good shepherd. I am the only way to God. And these types of descriptions as to who Jesus is. Again, the New Testament is filled with other various ways of identifying who Jesus is. But again, these were polarizing. Because when Jesus stands up and says, I am the good shepherd, He's literally taking and borrowing or utilizing, fitting upon himself the very title that Yahweh God has always been given. Yahweh God, Old Testament, has always been identified as the shepherd of the people of Israel. So Jesus shows up on the scene. He's like, what's up? I'm the good shepherd. This is extremely offensive if you're Jewish and you have these deep affiliations towards Yahweh God and you have this New guy come up on the scene from Galilee, nonetheless, doing the things that Jesus does, and then makes these claims that Jesus does. Jesus would say, "There's no no one comes to the Father but by me." Is, is that an exclusive claim? Absolutely exclusive. It's radically inclusive at the same time because it's given to everybody. There's nobody who's off limits. Jesus is not just simply catering to the Jewish people of his day. He's catering and calling everybody. No matter who they are, no matter what type of background or history or uh, way in which they would identify themselves, he's calling them all to follow him. But it's a radically exclusive saying, I am the only way to Yahweh God, to that place of wholeness. I am the one that will bring about covenantal faithfulness that will then lead to this, this beauty, this marriage, this idea. That's what the covenant meant is marriage with Yahweh God, whereby you are protected and God has given you life and you are being remade and reshaped by God's very own presence himself. So the claims and identity of Jesus are very significant and they oftentimes lead to all forms of opinions that oftentimes then lead to all forms of division. Secondly, we see conflicting worldviews. This is another thing that Jesus comes basically claiming um, insight from an entirely different kingdom. Uh, he's standing before Pilate, you know, one of the greatest you know, leaders of that region of Judea. He was, a, he was literally the embodiment, the representation of Caesar. And he, you know, asked the question, like, what is truth? And Jesus is, you know, describing him. I'm, you know, I'm here to represent God. Then he says the statement, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus comes representing, representing an entirely different kingdom, a kingdom that's foreign to Caesar, a kingdom that's foreign to any other philosophical construct and ideology of that day. This is why, in fact, to this very day, Jesus is still causing conflict amidst people because we're still trying to hold on to our own various ideological constructs or kingdom mindsets. What is a kingdom? A kingdom is simply a way in which we see that the world should be oriented or, or, or organized. That's what a kingdom claim is. We all have them. 
Every one of us in this room, if we were to sit down and have a cup of coffee and just chat, tell me how you think the world should go. What you are doing right now is you are giving me a claim as to how your perception of a kingdom in life, in society, in politics, however, should go. But the question is, does that synchronize with the kingdom that Jesus claimed? And if it doesn't, the question then naturally arises, well, then whose kingdom should be pervasive? My kingdom or the kingdom of Jesus? And that creates the conflict. Does that make sense? You guys following? You guys doing okay? All right, good. So the point of the matter is we see conflicting worldviews. And I thought it would be kind of interesting just to kind of go through a handful of these. So this mix of religion, philosophy, culture, historical circumstances, they all influenced how people understood life there in the first century as well as life in 21st century. Nothing's changed on this landscape. We all have a variety of worldviews in which we think about how worlds should be ordered, how life should be lived, how you should be able to live out your freedoms, how your neighbors should be able to live out their freedoms, how America should go, all of the above. Those are all kingdom visions that you and I, each one of us, has. But again, like I said, the question is, does it sync with the vision that Jesus gave? And if not, at some point, there will likely be conflict. But then that conflict can either become a gateway towards life and goodness and healing and wholeness and Jesus and future life and present life and for all of the above stuff that Jesus invites us to. Or it will be a a pathway where you will then cling tenaciously to this vision, hold it as your own, and at some point as you're driving this vision down the road and the wheels begin to fall off and the engine begins to drop out and things begin to smoke and pain begins to happen, then it becomes sometimes a moment for us to reassess. Like, is, is this vision for our life and how society should be living? Should I continue to be committed to this and keep investing in this vision? Or is it time for me to retire this whole thing, junk it, return back to Jesus, and receive all that Jesus says about himself, of the present, and of the future, and the past, all the above. So I thought it'd be kind of interesting. We'll wrap it up with some final thoughts. But uh, to just kind of go through some of the different worldviews, of, especially of Jesus' day, and we'll kind of end on some modern worldviews, and I want to finish with some just final thoughts as to how we can remain faithful to this. So in J- the Jewish world in which Jesus lived, there are at least a handful of different competing worldviews. I think probably the main worldview that most people that Jesus spoke to and interacted with, they were Jews. They were Jewish people, which means they had framed their life around the story of Moses, of Yahweh God, what we call the Old Testament, um, the, the Torah, uh, even within the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they all had different nuances as to how to approach this. But for the most part, the big idea was that uh, the Mosaic law or the Torah shaped every aspect of life. They woke up every morning saying, how can we uh, focus on justice, righteousness, and covenantal fidelity? Which means every Jew, for the most part, for the most part, would wake up looking at the fresh new start of the day and say, how do we live in a way of being faithful to our covenant-keeping God. Now, true or false, in our secular society, do secular people that live according to that worldview wake up thinking about how to be faithful to our covenant-keeping God? No. This is not the worldview. Does that make sense? You guys following so far? But in that world, it was covenant-keeping God, fidelity to him, living according to the law. And so what happens when they, when they fail the law? Well, they would go back to God, and they would go through the system that was provided for them. They would go to the temple. They would bring their sacrifice. But for many people, this was 
burdensome. Like they felt the ache and the burden of never being able to maintain covenantal fidelity and feeling the ache of always failing. And it's to those people that Jesus would say, come unto me, all you who are weary and tired and anxiety ridden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. You're, 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 you're falling under the weight of the burden that you're carrying, but I will give you rest for your soul. We see even within a Jewish world, another movement was what was called the Zealots. This would kind of be equivalent to like a Jewish nationalist movement that within this community, for the most part, they were driven by covenantal faithfulness, but they were driven by covenantal faithfulness to the point of bloodshed. If that meant them having to slaughter enemies for the sake of covenantal faithfulness, they were willing to do that. These were, these were people within the historical lineage of what's called the Maccabean Revolt, um, that these people were ready to go. They were nationalists for, for Yahweh God. And then there's another segment within the Jewish world called the Essenes. These are kind of more separatists. They rejected the temple corruption. They embraced strict purity laws. They lived with a deep sense of the end of age is at hand. So imagine these were these were kind of weird, nutty people that lived out. Many people believe out towards the Dead Sea region, and um, most people didn't interact with them. In fact, they're not even referenced for the most part in the New Testament. Some people actually believe that John the Baptizer was probably related to the Essenes, so he's probably our closest link to that. Um, within the broader non non Jewish world. So spanning out into the bigger, broader non-Jewish world, this would be more the Greco-Roman world. Uh, there's all forms of worldviews that people had, ways in which they viewed the world around them. So for one, probably within the region of Jesus, uh, in uh, Palestine, that region over there, uh, you would have probably what's called known as Roman nationalism. And for the most part, the ethos of Roman civic life was a view of civic duty. You're, you had a role and responsibility to towards the nation. Patriotism was huge. There was a very strong emphasis upon the rule of law, honorable conduct. So again, for the average Roman, they had a deep sense of patriotism towards uh, the Roman state. They had a deep sense of pride for what was happening. Again, did they wake up in the morning? Did you know typical Roman guy wake up in the morning saying, how do I keep covenantal faithfulness to Yahweh? No. It was not even on his radar because it wasn't his worldview. So, when they came in contact with Jesus, as we even see certain Roman guards did, they were forced to ask, how do we respond to, do, do we, do we uh, devote ourselves continually to Rome, or do we then transition our uh, loyalty from Rome to Jesus? And that becomes the pivot point for many of these people. Um, a couple other real quick ones we see even within the ancient Roman world, like Stoicism, Epicureanism, Cynicism. Each of these were vastly different philosophies that basically uh, people of the first century were oftentimes influenced by. I'll go through a couple of these real quick. So Stoicism, uh, you see a high emphasis upon self-mastery, cultivation of inner virtue, wisdom. Epicureanism was, for the most part, this idea of valuing friendship, developing a good crew of people around you that you can become your friends, lifelong partners, a deep sense of self-sufficiency, uh, pleasure-seeking, what we would call hedonism. It wasn't so much for the sense of overindulgence, though oftentimes it, it lended itself towards that. It was more towards tranquility. It's the idea of like, how do I focus on self, self-care, self-focus, self-mastery? All of these things were part of Epicureanism. Uh, there is another movement called cynicism. Uh, we get obviously get the word cynical from that, but these were people that were deeply suspicious of the system. These were punk rockers before punk was even a thing. These were people that were suspicious of wealth, power, fame. They rejected any traditional value. So if it was a traditional value that was handed down by great, great, you know, grandpa uh, that lived, you know, on some Greek island, they would look at that and say, ah, no, 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 no. We don't live according to that. 
we create our own standards for today that would benefit us as a collective whole. Uh, that was the philosophy of cynicism. As I was thinking about this in terms of our modern world, I'll go through these real quickly. Our modern world also has worldviews that clash with the kingdom of Jesus. I'll go through these real quickly. Number one, individualism. I, and I'm thinking specifically California, individualism. There's a strong emphasis upon individual freedom, self-determination, self-expression. People value uh, being true to themselves and pursuing their own path. That's individualism. It's, it's a worldview that basically says, I'm not going to let anybody challenge me or contradict me. I will be deeply, deeply loyal and committed to myself. Secondly is uh, we see all forms of political, conservative, progressive politics that play on the other path. Uh, thirdly, you can think of spirituality is another really big one, especially in California. It's this idea of like, I don't necessarily believe in Jesus per se, but I believe in some form of spirituality, the importance of uh, focusing on uh, the philosophies like New Age or mindfulness, Eastern religions, yoga, things of that nature can be oftentimes tossed in this as well. Um, and then another one is I think of immaterialism. This is, I would actually add probably more of an older generation, but this materialistic perspective that says uh, my, reputa- my reputation is oftentimes affixed to or my value of self and self-worth and success is uh, connected to the car that I drive the house that I own, how much wealth I have, how many investments I have. These are things I would look at and say, this is how I define myself. It's known as materialism. And then lastly, I'll go through this and I'm done. Technical, tech, technical or techno-optimism. It's a big big phrase. Techno-optimism. Let's say it. Techno-optimism. Let's take a look at that. It's the idea of tech. Technology will actually provide a way forward in our future. You, you, you realize we live three hours from the central Mecca slash Roman Colosseum of all of this. Like San Jose is, is the hot spot. It's the hot spot of where all of this is coming from. And we live within the culture of this. And the hope is that somehow with the right technology, we will be able to create a utopia that will cure the world's ills and bring about a future and a hope and healing for all human beings. The point that I would make is that when Jesus shows up in the world, Jesus will divide. And part of this division will be conflicting worldviews. There are certain worldviews that are tucked away in each of these things that are completely contradictory to the way of Jesus. And if you hold on to these worldviews over the claim of Jesus' invitation, then it will be a path towards our own brokenness. This is why Jesus invites us lastly. Ultimately, the third thing is this call to repent and follow. Jesus invites all people of all ages of all worldviews, to look at their worldview, no matter what it is. And again, I, I, I would add, there are some worldviews on here that I just read that are actually, you're going to get more mileage out of them than others. Meaning they're better. Uh, there's, a, there's a massive movement of stoicism in our world today. There's, you can just go on podcasts and search stoic. And honestly, I'm like, man, I would, I would out, a far more prefer someone, dude, who's not a Christian be devoted to the way of Stoicism than Epicureanism. Absolutely. You're going to get, you're going to be more, you know, physically fit. You're going to have a better, like, mental capacity. But the point of the matter is that at some point that will fail as well. But Jesus invites us to lay aside all of our worldviews. No matter what type of nuances they might contain. No matter what type of value they might have. And lay them down at his feet and surrender ourselves entirely, completely to him. This is the idea that Jesus' invitation is for us to reorder the some totality of our life around him. I'm going to throw out a phrase to you. 
might be controversial, but Jesus is inviting us to submit to him as our in a benevolent totalitarianism. It's contradictory. I know that. Those two words are completely contradictory. Benevolent meaning good. Totalitarianism meaning some total of everything. We think of totalitarian dictators today in our world today. They're the, you know, some dude that wants to have, like, uh, what, is, what was the guy's name? North Korea, I can't remember, Kim Jong-il, whatever. You know, a totalitarian regime. Uh, is that his name? Okay. And it's, it's destructive. Why? Because he's a human being. He's got human frailties and flaws, and he's a dictator, and he brings suffering and ruin over the lives of people. But Jesus is alive and resurrects and calls to life and is good and everything he claims and invites us into is good. Therefore, his call for us is to repent and turn and follow him. And I'm going to finish with this final thought. I'm done. How can we maintain faithfulness to Jesus amidst this world? Because this is, this is stuff that we look at on our landscape. And it's a world filled with contradictory opinions, divisions over who Jesus is, and then really tox- toxic cultural influences. And I'll go through these real quick. Number one, anchor yourself in the identity of Jesus. Do you know who you are? Or are you still searching? The invitation of Jesus is today, come and receive an identity that you didn't earn, you didn't buy, you can't merit, you can't work for it, there's not enough money that you can pay for it, but you can receive it. Secondly, submit your heart to the authority of Scripture. Think of it as the means of wisdom and guidance in this world. Apart from Scripture, where else, where else are you going to go? What other wisdom will you tap into? What other news, fake news, will you, how do you even know if it's news? Or is it newsworthy? Is it real? Or is it just popular? There's a difference between popular and real and truth. Jesus invites us to anchor ourselves to the historic storyline, what we call the scriptures, and let that begin to shape us. Will there be times you read scriptures and it sounds confusing or hard to swallow or difficult to orient your life with that? Yes, the answer is yes and yes and yes and yes. Why? Because part of discipleship means unlearning a lifelong discipleship to false ideologies. Let's say, for example, you're like, you know, I want to lose 20 LBs, but you eat really poorly. You live on a diet of really bad food. You, you could quickly go for a crash diet, but the better route forward for you is to learn a better way of eating and a better way of maintaining your health, a better way of working out, a better way of getting daily exercise. But tell you what, that's hard because it means you got to put down the Twinkie. You got to put down the processed food. You got to put down the stuff that's really bad for you. And you have to relearn an entire way, which means when you're sad, you're going through a tough time, your heart is just troubled or burdened, and all you want to do is to go to the bag of chips and eat it. Because that's how you respond to your pain of saying, I got to relearn this. And that's hard. That's discipleship to Jesus. It's taking all these worldviews that we had that were contradictory. And saying, I want to learn the way of Jesus, which means I've got to unlearn the way that I've been devoted to throughout my entire life. And that's a hard path. It's a path that involves sacrifice. It's a, it's a path that will feel painful at times. It's a path that, that there will be occasions where you feel like you are kicking and screaming against what Jesus is inviting, inviting you into. But I promise you, it is a path to life unless. Lastly, we see surround yourself with the idea of others that are of like mind. Find your tribe. Find your tribe. Many people are trying to be faithful to Jesus, but they are completely cut off or separated or isolated from other people that are walking with Jesus. 
the simplest way I think you can honestly do that is just find a church, get plugged in. Like, it's as simple as that. Get plugged in. I always tell people, I'm like, look, if you're already going to come to church on Sunday morning, find a way to get involved. Like, plug in. Be part of a team. You're going to grow. You're going to get to know people. It'll be good for your discipleship. You're going to make friends. Um, when you have a rough morning, you'll show up. People will gather around you and pray for you. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's all part of that discipleship. And this is, I think, how we can live um, faithfully to Jesus, even in the midst of a world that is largely divided over who Jesus is and what he claims. So I'm done. I'm going to invite you all to stand right now, and I want to pray over us. Invite us to live into what Jesus has. So let me pray. And uh, Father, right now, as we bring our hearts to you, we also bring our worldviews, our ideas, our emotions, our bad habits, our bad thought patterns, our bad perceptions, the toxic cultures that we've imbibed, that we've breathed in, that we've lived into, that have affected us and impacted us negatively. We bring all these things, Lord, and we lay them at your feet, Jesus. Take our hearts, our lives, our minds, and renew us. God, re-anchor us to an identity that you've given us. Tether us, Lord, again, afresh to the historic scriptures that give us life and point us in the way of wisdom. God, help us to live into this beautifully messy, comfort, challenge community we call the, the body of Christ. God, help us to truly live. And if there's pain or hurt or trauma or hardship that we bring, Lord, we we ask for healing in all of these areas because we want to be fully in in all that you're inviting us into. So Holy Spirit, come and breathe life over your people here. And if there's anybody here this morning right now, God, that is far from you or that claims to have some sort of knowledge of you or has some form of opinion about you, but there's no true devotion of their heart and soul and life to the way, complete beauty of Jesus. God, I pray that you would just draw people by goodness, by grace, into a complete surrender to who you are as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, Father, as we scatter now, empower us to just live faithfully for you in this world. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen.